You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 13th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Psalm 90 is a prayer uh, that Moses wrote. Uh, and in verse 12 of that psalm, Moses prayed this. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. If I'm really honest, I'm not sure that that would make a, uh, a current top 10 prayer request list. Teach us to number our days. But without it, you and I are left vulnerable to living our days without wisdom. We're vulnerable to living our days foolishly. Teach us to number our days that we might not spend them selfishly. That's foolishness. Arrogantly, that's foolishness. Presumptively, that's foolishness. Teach us to number these days. There's something incredibly refining to the soul when you live with the end in view. You know, I I don't think it's something that I could say was always there for me, um, even as an adult, but I can say now, and it might just be for me the process of age, but... I can say with sincerity, I, I want to finish well. Not that I didn't want to finish well before, I just don't know that I thought about it. You know, the days seemed unnumberable, innumerable for me. Um, and maybe this is part age, but I don't think it has to be. Teach us to number these days. I think about them a lot more now than I used to. Um, This is on Paul's mind and heart as he wrote this letter to Timothy and the church that we've been spending the last number of weeks in. You know, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, imprisoned in the Mamertine prison. Unlike his previous stints in prison, this was one where Paul was isolated in a dank, dark space, chained to the wall. At one point, he had been one of the single most respected religious leaders in his day, and now he's old, and he's alone, and he's cold, and he's been jailed under the charges of sedition, and now shivering there all alone in prison Those who had at one point, at least in his life, been a part of his life and ministry there, he'll say, and we'll look at it in the coming weeks, in this last trial, they had deserted me. He's there by himself, numbering these days. And to those who had opposed him, Paul had now become a joke. For those that had opposed him, not even so much in Rome, but those who had opposed him in the church, this was a moment to capitalize 
on Paul. You know, they began to go into the churches and, and reason with the disciples that Paul's current condition was proof that all the stuff that he had been teaching, all the ways that he had been calling them to live, all the hope that he had been holding out to them would leave them nowhere but alone, in chains, and in prison. And so they began to spread their own first century version of the health and wealth message, saying, look at what this got Paul. Look at what his message got him. Shame on him for trying to do that to you. So there's Paul, alone in that prison, furiously writing to Timothy, writing to the church, reminding them once again in all things to never stop feasting on this life-giving word, to believe it, to guard it, to guard it to the point of, of being willing to suffer for it. Because the days are going to go from bad to worse. You can count on it. And when the clouds on the horizon get darker, you don't have to give in to the fear. Rather, having feasted on this word continually in the midst of these dangers and challenges, keep preaching this word. Keep holding out to people the life-giving reality of God's grace in his son. Proclaim it everywhere you go. Because, and this is where Paul picks up and where we pick up with the letter, because, for, my race is ending. The baton, so to speak, is now yours, Timothy. It's now yours, church. And in these three verses, these very small verses, Paul is going to reflect on his imminent death. He's going to look back on the life that he's lived. And he's going to look ahead at the future that awaits. And in these three verses, God very kindly through the Apostle Paul and the circumstance that he was in gives us a portrait of what it looks like to live well and to finish well how to actually live with the end in view. How to finish well, having understood our days. And friends, we like Timothy, it would do us well to listen to Paul and to learn. And so as we pick up the verses, the first thing that Paul points to is his imminent death. We, we know that this is the last letter we have of Paul. At any point in the near future, he is going to lose his life for following Jesus. And it's this imminent death that Paul begins to reflect on here with Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. You'll see through the morning that these three verses hold a lot of images. Paul is painting pictures for Timothy. The first thing he holds out to Timothy, which he's already taught Timothy over and over again in the years they've been together, he's reminded him of it often, is that Paul saw and lived his life and now his death as a sacrifice of worship. Paul did not consider what was about to happen to him as an execution. 
Paul wasn't sitting there in this prison wrestling with the reality that everything was coming to an end in some kind of unfair and unjust way. Given all that he had done for the Lord and all that he had done for the church, this is how it's going to end? That wasn't Paul. Paul had lived his life even to this point with a view that it was a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. This is what he reminded the church in Rome. Timothy was with him. When he wrote, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And here in this verse, Paul paints a picture of how he has understood his life. See, in those days, after the sacrificial lamb had been placed on the altar, just before the priest would light it on fire, he would pour out about a quart of red wine onto that sacrifice. It was the final sacrifice, the drink offering, that would be poured out on the existing sacrifice. Paul saw his own life in that image of the blood-red wine splashing down that altar. And this wasn't new for Paul. When Paul wrote to the church in Philippi about the possibility of his death, he described it as being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of their faith. Paul understood his whole life as being lived as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And now in his death, this was simply the last drop of that drink offering being poured out on the Lamb. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus... Your life is meant to be a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And Paul is reminding Timothy, he's reminding the church, he's reminding you and I this morning that if it costs you anything, and it will cost you, it might cost you friends, it might cost you your head, the way that it will cost Paul. It's okay. Because your entire life has been an offering to the Lord. Timothy would no doubt have to consider, as you and I would have to consider this morning, how do you view the life that you're currently living? living? What would be different? What would even look different if you viewed your whole life as a sacrifice of worship to the Lord? What difference would this perspective make on the pain that's to come in being a disciple of Jesus? Paul could live and die differently. One, because he understood his entire life, including his death, as a spiritual act of worship, as a sacrifice unto the Lord, but also because Paul saw his death not as the end. It was simply a departure. Death wasn't the end for Paul, and we see it in the language he uses. That word departure is used predominantly throughout Greek literature as referring to a boat that had been docked up, anchored down, ropes tied, being unmoored. Ropes undone, anchor lifted, being set off to another shore, about to commence the journey which it was prepared for. This is how Paul saw the death that was to come. The anchor of his life is up and the ropes are untied. He's ready to set sail to another place. 
And because of that, there's no fear eating him up. In fact, he's overflowing with anticipation for the journey. This final departure for Paul is ultimately the culmination of his deepest desire. He told that same church in Philippi, I desire to depart. Same word, to cast off the ropes, to pull up the anchor, to set sail, and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Better by far. Paul actually believed that with his whole heart. He told that same church that he was living hard-pressed between wanting to stay and to work with them for their joy and for their faith and setting sail to be with Jesus, which for him he believed to be better. There's no fear for Paul because it's not the end. Paul knew to whom he was setting sail. It was the one he had already told Timothy and the church, the one in whom he had come to believe. Friends, death becomes a a frightening reality for some of us. Not only because there's time that we spend looking back on the life we wished we had lived, but honestly, because so many of us, even in the church, view death as the end we live, even if we won't admit it, we, we live with this nagging sense, and for some it's overt and clear, that this is actually the end, that nothing lies ahead. And I think for those of us in the church that wrestle with this fear and this, this nagging sense of what might be, it's in part become, because Jesus has never fully captured our affections. For Paul, it's better off. I mean, he's fighting day in and day out between wanting to stay in labor for people's faith and departing to be with Jesus because he knew in whom he had believed. And when Jesus hasn't captured our affections, when knowing him, not just in truth, but knowing him, coming to know his person, his character, his trustworthiness, coming to know him, when that hasn't captured our affections, it makes complete sense that in thinking that the departure is to be with him, that which we don't really know and haven't been captured by, might leave us a little concerned. And so for even some of us, this idea of death, it it brings uncertainty and worry and fear. It's not our highest good. But death itself, it, it's not the thing that is great gain. And we need to be careful with that. We hate death and resist it. And we're right to do so. Death itself is part of the curse that we bear, the, the tragic wages of having rejected God and his kingdom. God created us to live, not die. Death itself is is not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. It's an evil thing. This same Paul will call death our mortal enemy. So, So how for saints like Paul and you and I, how does it become great gain? Well, it becomes great gain when we understand that in the most tragic moment in human history, 
the Son of God offering his life on a cross in our place for our sins. In that act, the very thing that frightens so many of us the most, death itself, the idea that this is the end, the idea that there's nothing beyond that, the idea that this then would be the end of our joy, that very fear is defeated in itself. Death is killed. Because three days later, this Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death. When he returns on that last day in which he has promised, and Paul keeps coming back to in this letter because he's awaiting that day with eagerness, death itself will be destroyed forever. Because it's Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Which is why one pastor put it this way, it isn't death itself that is precious or gained to us. It's the resurrection and the life that's precious to us. It's Jesus, the one who has removed death's sting and swallowed it up in victory, in whom we are receiving an eternal inheritance beyond our wildest dreams. And in whose glorious presence, we will experience unsurpassed joy forevermore. It's not death that is precious to us. It's Jesus that is precious to us. And he is our great gain in death. Friends, this is the Christian hope. If you'd like to know more about this, we would love nothing more than to help you better understand how Jesus utterly transforms death and how death becomes for a disciple of Jesus great gain and how we can live and even face it like Paul as understanding it to be better by far. We would love to talk with you about that. We'll be out front. I'll be out front or the pastors will be out front after the service. If someone invited you here this morning, maybe you can ask them. They would love to talk with you about it. We want to help you understand this. We would love to help you understand it. If you're here this morning and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, I would ask you this. If you'd be willing to ask yourself the question, what is great gain to you? Is Jesus great gain to you? I think if Paul were here this morning and he were able to say something to us, I think he would say, I promise you, Jesus is worth it. But living with this in view, living in the light of this reality, it's going to be a fight every single day of your life here on earth. It's going to be a lifetime battle to fight for this kind of satisfaction and confidence. It was a lifetime battle for Paul, it's going to be a lifetime battle for us. This is what he begins to communicate when he reflects on the life that he's lived to this point. Look at verse 7. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I, I, I want to encourage you here, and this is me. I, I'm joining a, a chorus of much smarter scholars than myself, but I don't think that Paul is referring to three distinct things here. I think that Paul is giving us, again, two images 
of what it looks like to actually keep the faith. I don't think these are three distinct things he's talking about. I think the first two of fighting the good fight and finishing the race help us understand what's involved in actually keeping the faith. And I say that because in his first letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And so in his last letter to Timothy, when he says, I have fought the good fight, it's only right to interpret Paul by his own words and assume that he's talking about the good fight of faith. So what is this faith that Paul has fought so hard to keep? That he's run so hard to maintain? Well, let's let Paul answer himself. In chapter 3 of this letter, verse 15, Paul's reminded Timothy to continue in the Scriptures, to continue in God's Word, which alone are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The faith that Paul has fought to keep, the faith that Paul has endured to hold on to, the faith that Paul is holding out to Timothy in the church, it's not simply faith in a set of propositional truths. It's not faith in themselves. It's faith in someone most particularly faith in Jesus. And think about it in your own life. What does it mean for you to actually have faith in somebody? What are you saying? To say that you have faith in somebody is to say you trust them. You take them at their word. You have confidence in who they are, confidence in their integrity, confidence in their character, confident in their promises, confident in their counsel to you. What Paul is saying to Timothy in the church is that I have continued to take Jesus at his word. I've continued to trust what Jesus has said. I've trusted his counsel. I've trusted him to keep his promises. I haven't lost confidence in Jesus. When Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, listen, I have fought to stay confident in all things that he really did purchase the forgiveness for my sins. That's what Paul's saying. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall live, Paul is saying, I have fought to be just as confident in Jesus now as I ever have been, and that his resurrection gives me eternal hope. That's what Paul's saying. When Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul is saying, I have not lost confidence that God's present power for me through his son is able to work even now. That's what he's saying. Faith in Jesus means faith in all that he has said and done because it's confidence in who he is, in his character in his integrity, in his power. I've kept the faith. I haven't stopped taking Jesus at his word. I don't hear myself. I'm preaching myself now. <laughs> Go ahead. I, you know, that guy sounds better. <laughs> Paul's saying that's what it looks like to finish well. That's what it looks like. 
One guy said, finishing well means keeping the faith and holding fast to the goodness of God, relying upon him, trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of all of our sins and for carrying us through whatever pain there is. And without getting angry and rejecting him and throwing in the towel and saying, if this is the kind of God you are who's letting me go this early, then I'm not going to have anything to do with you. It's the same Paul who will remind us that this faith is an endurance battle to believe that in all things, in all things, God is for you in Jesus. You're probably familiar with what Paul told the church in Rome if you've been in church for any period of time. In Romans 8, when he said, what shall we say to all these things that God has done? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And Paul's saying, listen, Christ and Christ alone has justified you before God completely. It's all in and through Him. And therefore, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have God totally and completely on your side in all things. So that even famine, he's not making stuff up. Even famine, if you've ever considered what it is to die of starvation and the wretched nature of that, what would happen to Christians in the early days of the church? Even famine or nakedness, you know what that means? It means that they would strip Christians of their clothes in the middle of the winter and march them out to frozen lakes and bodies of water where they would have to stand until they died. Or persecution happens all over the world today. Or the sword. In all of these things, Paul is saying God is not against you. And it's an endurance race, an endurance heavyweight fight to believe that. Not to make it true, because it's already true in Jesus. That is a certainty. But it is a heavyweight fight every day you're on this earth to actually believe it. I've kept the faith, Paul is saying. Even now, chained up to this wall, awaiting that death, I'm still taking him at his word. I haven't lost my confidence in who he is. And the images that Paul gives, the, the fight that's been fought and the race that's been run, won, run, they're there to help us understand more of what's involved in it. That's really what it is, to make it more real. And so with a little bit of time that we have, let's just see what kind of implications are in there that might make this more real for you. And the first thing, the big thing, the big E on the I chart is that it's going to be hard. 
In fights, you get punched in the face. It happens. Especially if it's all day, every day, you're going to get hit. In these kinds of endurance races, you're going to run to the point of exhaustion sometimes. And knowing this, what do you do? You train for it. You prepare for it. You sacrifice for it. You exercise discipline to be able to do it. I mean, it was Jesus, don't forget, who said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. When it comes to this endurance fight of faith, if we're going to be really honest, and it's okay to be really honest, I know sometimes this feels like the last place you really want to be honest, but it's okay. When it comes to this, most of us, if we're honest, would would prefer a fairly painless fight and a pretty easy race. And with that preference being what often dominates our heart, it's no wonder that most of our lives don't really display the kind of exercise of discipline or sacrifice or intention required to be able to endure such a fight or such a race and come out on top. Which I think is somewhat crazy when you think about the stuff we're willing to pay other people to put us through. And I say that honestly, as someone who loves exercise, as someone who loves competition and fitness, these days there's this idea in that world that if your work has not left you on the edge of death, you're cheated. And people will pay hundreds of dollars a month to have someone else put them through this kind of abuse. To embrace the suck. To suffer hard. And there are men and women around this country that go through these kinds of things in order to become elite soldiers. For the purpose. We pay other people to put us through it. To get our name on a board or a medal around our neck. And even Paul will say that this is not of any value. It has value. There's value. But when you think about what we're willing to exercise discipline around and sacrifice for in order to be able to endure, and then you consider this fight and race of faith that we're on, what are we willing to sacrifice? What kind of intentionality do our lives demonstrate? What kind of discipline? Have we enacted to be able to run well, to be able to fight well? It's going to be hard in no small part because we face opposition along the way. That's the nature of a fight. It's the nature of a race. You have opponents. This endurance fight against unbelief it helps us to see that the kind of faith that Paul is talking about, a confidence in Jesus at his word for who he is, it's not automatic. In fact, again, I just think of my own heart and my own life, and you think of your own, if you're going to be really honest, the kind of confidence Paul is talking about in Christ and in his word always seems to want to be running away. It always seems like my grip on it in my heart is kind of slippery. It's always trying to go. And that's in part because we face opposition to it. 
There is in every single one of us remaining an old nature that makes confidence in Jesus a struggle. Our old self wants to trust in ourselves and lean on our own understanding in order to gain some kind of glory for the life that we've lived. And this is particularly difficult, I think, in a country like ours where most of us have lived the predominant nature and years of our life without really having to depend upon Jesus for really substantial things in our life. Lots of things have have been a lot easier for us than they are for people in other parts of the world. And so there's this old self that's always doing battle in our hearts for this kind of confidence. But it's not just that. We, We have an enemy There is an enemy to our soul. And he has set his sights directly on your confidence in Jesus. That's why John says, 1 John 5, this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Not a propositional set of truths, but our confidence in Jesus. Taking him at his word because of who he is. John would say, who is it that overcomes except those who believe He is who he says he is. If the enemy of your soul can continually just cut and puncture holes in the sails of your faith, then he's done what he can do. He has set his sights on your confidence in Jesus. Many of you might remember Luke chapter 22, that that moment between Jesus and Peter when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Behold, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that, do you remember what he said? That what? Your faith. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. The enemy of your soul wants to to sift your life. Now, that's a hard image for us. So if you've ever pressed garlic or, or, or pressed like a lemon or an orange in a press, that's what he's talking. Think about that. He's desired to press you through that press. And what is it he's trying to extract? Faith. Your confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And the promises that he's made, he is going to keep. Now, Jesus knew that Peter would stumble, but he prayed for him. He knew that his knee would hit the mat multiple times. But he prayed for him. Because he knew that this race and this fight for confidence in him was going to require the kind of endurance and perseverance that only he can provide. It requires this kind of perseverance. If you've run a marathon, you know that 19.1 miles is not a finished race. No matter how hard you ran, you ran way further than I'm ever going to run. And no matter how hard you ran it, you didn't actually finish it. This endurance race and fight that Paul is talking about, this fight of faith, is a fight to the end. It's a race to death. You you never get to a point in this thing where you can say or step back and say, I've run well, I've fought hard for the last 30 years, I've kept confidence in who Jesus is and what he has said. His counsel has shaped my life. It's shaped my thoughts. It's shaped my decision. So I'm going to sit back for a bit now and let it be. 
There's never a point in this thing where you ever get to do that. You don't get to stop and just sit where you are. You know what happens when you stop? You actually go backwards. Because this race, in a sense, is a race running upstream in a current. And the current of sinful influence and your own arrogant corruption in your own heart is always pushing against you. And so if you just stop, you don't stay where you are, you actually go backwards. That's the drift that Paul kept talking about last week in the letter. No, it requires perseverance and endurance. As one writer said, the Christian life is a fight. And if you sense no struggle in your life to trust Christ more, it means you're either perfect or that you've already surrendered. It requires perseverance and endurance. So praise God that Paul has reminded us over and over in this letter that our perseverance is fueled and fought for by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Period. We're not left alone in it. This fight of faith, this race for faith and joy and satisfaction in God through Christ is fought for and fueled by God's word. It's part of the reason why Paul has been adamant about all these gospel imposters that keep sneaking their way into the church, damaging people's lives. Because they can't fuel this kind of endurance. They leave you empty and helpless and defenseless. You see, when you find your heart and you find your mind being assaulted by suggestions and ideas that your life would be better, there would be more joy, there would be more satisfaction, there would be more security. If you just quit listening to Jesus, if you just quit taking him at his word, If you just quit doing what he said, it'd be a lot easier for you and you'd be a lot happier probably and there's probably more joy for you in all of that. When those suggestions begin to assault, it is the word of God working with the spirit of God that fuels you to fight this battle for your joy and for your faith in Christ. That's why the psalmist said, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It was Jeremiah who went through more than will ever endure, who said, your words were found and I ate them and they became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. But Jesus would say, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, it's God's word working with his spirit. This is where our joy, our confidence, and our satisfaction in Jesus is set afire. It's where the race is fueled, the battle fought. Friends, this is what we need every single day to happen in our heart for us to be able to run well and fight well. It's why Paul has been continually pleading with Timothy and with the church and now even with us in the days ahead. Please be a people of this word. This is how the fight is fought and the race is won. But it's also the place we see Jesus. (laughs) 
the one in whom we have believed. The one in whom our soul increasingly longs to depart and be with. With unveiled face, Paul told the church in Corinth, we behold. That's a seen word. That's a, that's a seen word. We behold the glory of the Lord, and in that we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So you and I continue to be transformed and filled with confidence and joy in Jesus by seeing him and what we hear about him in his word. It's how it works. It's how the race is won and the fight is fought. And praise be, part of the letter, the implication of all that Paul has said that we pick up on, and we can spend more time on maybe next week, is that we don't do it alone. We fight this fight for faith and run this race for faith together. That's why Jesus told Peter back then in Luke 22, I know it's going to take endurance. I know it's going to take perseverance. I know you're going to fall. But when you've turned, remember what he said? Strengthen your brothers. When you've turned, strengthen your brothers. You need one another to run this race and fight this fight for faith and joy in me. That's why the writer of Hebrews, whether you think it's Peter or Paul or not, will say, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It takes one another to fight for confidence and faith and joy in Jesus. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's a fight to hold fast to the fact that Jesus is faithful. For our hearts not to give in to the wavering and the wondering and the wandering. Let us consider, he said, how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, all the more as you're learning to number your days. The fight for faith and the race of faith is to hold fast to our confession and confidence without wavering, and we do that together without neglecting one another. But that will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you comfort. It will cost you your preferences. But again, if Paul was here, I think he would say it's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. That's why Paul says it's a good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. You realize how many fights or arguments, situations Paul has talked about in this letter so far that aren't good? Because we can be so preoccupied with getting involved in bad fights. There are bad fights that make us feel good. And this letter has been about not majoring on the bad fights while neglecting the one good one. Because there is a good fight. And Paul is saying whatever it takes, whatever the strategies, whatever the tactics, whatever the sacrifices, whatever it takes for you to focus on fighting the fight to build faith in your life and in the lives of people you care about, that's the fight worth fighting. There is a good fight, and it's the one worth fighting for the eternal joy and confidence that is ours in Jesus. A fight for the kind of joy and faith 
that will allow us to suffer and endure and to finish well. Church, may we help each other fight for such a confidence in Jesus that would allow us to say with Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because he's worth it. And therefore, it's worth fighting for. I mean, seriously, if all the pain is worth the money that we shell out to go through physically, to get whatever reward there is to hold out, how much more so this fight and this race for the eternal crown of righteousness? And that's where Paul goes and how we'll end. Henceforth, Paul said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearing. I mean, read it like a human. For all Paul knew, he was just a handful of breaths away from this faith he has in Jesus finally becoming sight. And he's chained up in that prison because Nero and the Roman government have judged him guilty and condemned him to death. But his confidence in Jesus has fixed his eyes on the righteous judge who will indeed on that day reverse the verdict that Nero has made and declare him righteous. Not because of anything that he did. As zealous as he was to keep all of the law, that confidence he has is not in any way, shape, form, or fashion grounded in anything in his life. His confidence and faith was in the perfect righteous life of Jesus being imputed to him by grace through faith. And this same promise, backed by the same integrity and character as the one who made it, awaits all who have loved his appearing. Friends, is that you? Is that you? You don't have to fear his appearing. You can overflow with anticipation for that day because of who he is. Which is why I'll go back to Moses. Teach us to number our days that we may actually live them with a heart of wisdom. Paul was able to face his death head on. Look back on his life as a race well run and a fight well fought and look forward to an eternal crown and everlasting future with Jesus who had become his greatest delight. Friends, our confidence, our great confidence is not that you have lived in any way some kind of remarkable life as you or anyone else in this world defines that. Our greatest confidence is that Jesus did in the most meaningful way ever possible live the greatest, most remarkable life in our place and then die the death that we deserve to die for our sin. By his life, death, and resurrection, you and I can not only have joy now, but we can know with certain confidence that there is more joy imaginable yet to come. And we can run this race with endurance because we can know 
that we have the sure hope that we will stand before this righteous judge and be welcomed into his presence for all of eternity on the basis of his life and his righteousness. And we can run it knowing that for us, there's no condemnation for us on that day because of him. Friends, this is the confidence that we not only proclaim as we speak of the gospel and God's great promises, it is the confidence that we proclaim when we're together and we receive communion together. When we take the bread and we take the cup and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're actually proclaiming our confidence in Jesus for who he is and what he's done right now. Not just in the past, not just in the future, but right now, today. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And the musicians are going to begin to play. And for all of those who have believed upon Jesus, who have turned from their sin and by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, have surrendered to him as king and savior, you're going to be invited to come forward and proclaim, not with your mouth, but with your body, by taking this bread and this cup into yourself. You are proclaiming your confidence in him. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a moment to reflect and then you're going to be invited to come forward and make that declaration together. So let me pray, and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you that in these days you have given us, you've not left us to ourselves, but Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, through the work of your word in our hearts every single day, you help us to see your son more clearly, that it might not just be truth about him that we hold fast to, but our hearts would see him and know him. It would be his person and his character, and his love, and his integrity, and his justice, and his holiness, and his mercy that so captures our hearts and lives. Lord, we want to get to the day when we get to be with you forever, and we want to get to it like Paul, where we can say that what's to come is better by far, by far. And we want that reality and that knowledge to shape the days we have here on earth. So Lord, teach us to number them well that we might live them well with wisdom. Rescue us from our own foolishness. Let us live wise in light of your son. For we ask this in his good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.